Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 32? Over the last few Sundays, we've been looking at this part of the Psalter uh, in the 30s, which all point to why should we praise God? What is there to praise God for? What is, why is it right that a righteous person would spend all of their life doing everything during their day, doing everything privately, doing everything that they do with other people, pointing towards God's praise? Because it's not just appropriate, it's the delight for a Christian. When a Christian is praising God, they are home. They're, they're right. Things are perfect. They're already in heaven. Things that will be true of us forever can be true of us right now. So we looked first in Psalm 33. Psalm 33 told us to sing with a joyful heart, sing with, with power, sing with, with conviction of spirit. For God is perfect in so many ways. And the, the psalm enumerated all the ways of God's perfections that thrill us and prov- provoke us to praise in God, to remind us, to remind our heart who God is to us, to give us that, that thought of praising God. <clears throat> we then lo- looked at Psalm 34, and Psalm 34 was David's personal testimony of when he escaped from Abimelech, the king of God. And that powerful testimony was God's deliverance of him. So God's, God working in your real life is why we praise God, because you see God bailing you out. You see God providing for you. You see God teaching you. You see God leading you. The life of a Christian um, is slow at first because we don't see what we're seeing. We don't recognize what we're looking at. When we're looking at God working in our life, we're still very cloudy. We're still wrapped up in our grave clothes. And it takes a long time for us to realize, oh my goodness, what is God doing? And as you see him and as you're scared and you're bumbling and all of the things that go on in your life, you see that God is actually taking you to glory. It gives you power. A saint closer to, to glory is usually a more purified saint. Okay, And you'll normally see that as we get older in front of each other. The people who know God will be more godly, more joyful, more praising. The people who don't know God will be less and less so. And that's just the way it works in this world. Psalm 32 is why we should praise God, because our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. Now, when you, when you think of that, you, you think of, if I were to know that my sins were forgiven, I would have everything. There's nothing else truly that I need that God would provide for me and do all the things and protect me and guide me, always would be coming after the fact that he forgave me. And so in Psalm 32, David is talking about blessedness, right? We saw the Beatitudes. Joel read the Beatitudes to us in Matthew. Blessed is or blessed be the man who is like this, Blessed are the people that are like this. Blessed are the people who are like this. Blessed is a word we don't use. Blessed has something to do with happiness, but it's more than happiness. 
Because you can, be, you can enjoy God's blessing and be in a situation that the happenstance of that situation is not necessarily good. You can go through dark, deep, hard times. You can go through crisis. You can go through scary operations and not know what's going to happen, not know the end of the story, but know who is holding the story, know who's holding you while you're in, in uncertainty. And through, so you can go all the way through. Psalm 32 is talking about the blessedness that comes when you are uh, forgiven. Now, the other, there's only other, one other psalm that starts like this. Blessed is he, and it is Psalm 1. Now, Psalm 1 is on purpose the first psalm. The rest of these psalms are not in order. They're not in order in terms of, of David's life. They're not in order in terms of Solomon's life or Moses or the other people, the sons of Asaph that wrote these psalms. They are not chronological, even within centuries. You've got some psalms that were written hundreds of years before others that are not, are actually come first. So, so it's not like we wrote, wrote this and it's Psalm 1 and I wrote this and it's Psalm 2. They're assembled into five books. And those five books have some purpose of why God's people would sing them. These are all to be sung. We're going to start singing some of these psalms. To sing, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That is enjoying the fact that it's true. It's telling your soul that something happened, reminding yourself of why God is to be greatly praised. Psalm 1, though, was picked to be first. Because it's blessed is the man who doesn't walk according to the counsels of this world, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful, but his meditation is on God's word day and night, and he's like a tree planted beside water streams that will always yield a leaf and never wither. The, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, but the righteous will. And it, they'll stand in the judgment, but to stand accepted in the judgment. The, right, the righteous will, the wicked will not, but they'll be like the wind, that the, that the, the chaff that the wind blows away. So Psalm 1 is talking about happiness of someone that's in covenant with God, who is right with God. To be right with God means that while everybody else is in a desert time, they're still green. That there's something about a person who's right with God that everything around them is, is life. That there's a green space around them at all times. You know the people I'm talking about. The people who are right with God are the people that you want to be around yourself. The people that remind you who God is. The people who point you back when you're you're shaky and wobbly. Well, Psalm 32 is a little bit scarier and a little bit more important because this is about the person who was once in covenant with God, one time right with God, but has let sin separate God from them. And God is distant. And God is only a memory of what something that used to be. And they may go years and years living a lie, living in pretending that something is true, pasting leaves onto their tree so that it looks like they're alive when really it's not hard. If you were cut a tree down the first week of August, 
it would be green for weeks, weeks. You could cut that tree down and, and just leave it with all the leaves, and it would still be really green leaves in three weeks. But you leave it for much longer, and they start getting yellow, and then they start getting brown, and then they start getting thin, and you will be able to tell. So if you were to go out into the woods in February, it's hard to tell which trees are dead. It really is. It, takes, it would take a really, really experienced woodsman to look and say, no, that's very obvious that that's dead, but this one obviously is just dormant. But you go through April, and all the trees are greening, and that one's not. And then you go through May, and all the leaves are small, and that one's still completely like it was in winter. You can tell when someone is alive or someone isn't dead. And you can tell when someone is living God's life out or holding it in. And David was there. David lived through this too. David had experience doing this. And because he did, he was able to talk about it. Now, he wrote two psalms. He wrote two psalms like this. The other one is Psalm 51. Psalm 51, the introduction actually says, this is when I wrote, I wrote this psalm when I was essentially repenting of what I did with Bathsheba. All of her, his sin. He not only committed adultery, he not only stole someone's wife from him, someone who was loyal to them, he then had them killed and then covered it up for a year until the baby was born. And for, during that entire time, David went along with everything he was supposed to do. He went through the motions of his real faith in God. But he was like a dry tree. He was never alive. He was never joyful. He had no life in him. He was like sapped. So we're going to see that David is now longer still reflecting back on this time and seeing what it was that God did, not at the beginning, but at the end. All right, so that's where we're going to go. So you be looking, what happened first? What happened second? What happened third? As he goes through and he tells you about this event. And he doesn't detail this event. This says it's a maskel. I don't know if, you've, if, uh, if you have a King James Bible, it says that at the beginning. It's a maskel of David. There's, of the 150 Psalms, there's about 13 maskels. And a maskel simply means a teaching. It's an instruction. This psalm is to teach you something. So that's interesting. If I know that it's a maskel, and I know that blessed is a joyful or happy, then there's an, there's an instruction here on how am I to live a joyful, happy life. What would be true of me if that were true? Okay, so let's go through it. This is Psalm 32. There's 11 verses here. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this 
Shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in time where they mayest be found? Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the ways that thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be you not as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with a bit and a bridle, lest they come near to thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. You see it? At the beginning... You've got, you've got a repetition. Remember, all of these poems are like that. That's how a Hebrew poem is. To emphasize some, something, they said it more than once, and he said it in a different way. This time, he didn't just double it. He quadrupled it. There are four things I see at the beginning that if this were true of you, there would be a joy in your life. There would be a natural happiness in your state, whatever that state would happen to be, there would be a contentment with joy. And that joy would radiate from you. And it would be something that would simply be true of you, not something you would try to accomplish, but just something that is because of your connection to God. Like that tree that is planted beside water, streams of water. That tree is not trying to do anything. It's just growing leaves because it has water. That's what it is. So God is providing, and then you are simply being alive because God is doing something through you. So let's look here at the beginning. The first two verses have these four things in it. See if you can find them. You're looking for four things. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Can you see it? Three of them are very, very similar to me. One of them is slightly different. One is one almost is something that happens as a result of the other three. I like that it's lopsided. If it were too symmetrical, I can tune you out easy. When you, ha- when you put something in that's a little bit different, it's easier for me to, to pop it into my... I can pay attention. So I see that... A person who is happy, these things are true. Your transgressions are forgiven. Your sin is covered. Your iniquity is is not counted towards you or against you. And your spirit is not deceived itself and it's not deceiving other people. That there's that's to be true. But see, all of this transgression and sin and iniquity, the reason why we have different words for it is because it's so common. When you have something that's very, very common in a culture, you have more than one word for it. If something is very uncommon, you'll have one word for it. There are all these words for the same thing because sin is the most common thing we have together. We have two things in in common, all of us. We have fellowship in two things. We have fellowship in that we're sinners. We, We all have that in common. That's what draws us together. Now, our sins are different. Our personalities are different. How you sin is different than how I sin. How you break God's heart is different than how I break God's heart. But the second thing is that a fellowship of Christians is a fellowship and only a fellowship 
in that we are redeemed by the Savior, that the Savior has redeemed us and bought us again, and we have right fellowship with God as a result, that our Savior saved us, and that salvation has done something to us, and that's what draws us together. So Christians are the most unlikely motley crew you could ever assemble. I don't know if that's ever occurred to you, that these are not the people necessarily that you would have ever chosen as your friends because they're not always like you. They don't like the same things you like. They're not the same personality as you. But there's something true of a believer that attracts another believer. They want to be together. I've had more fellowship with a believer that couldn't speak the language than with people I went to high school with and tried to like and tried to interact with and just had a flat relationship with because there's something true of us, a fellowship that's true. So our fellowship is in disobedience and in hatred towards God and in divergence away from God. And we're debtors that can't pay our debt. So what does it say here? It says, for me to be happy, my transgression needs to be forgiven. So transgression, let's do a little bit of definitions, okay? Because these, sometimes these, these words are so old because these concepts are so old. Sin is a very old concept. Transgression just means crossing a line. If you have a barrier and you cross the line, that's transgression. That's why you put a, you put a collar on your dog that shocks your dog when they go across the line, okay? Um, it's why you, you see kids at the mall with little backpacks with, with leashes so that they can go only to the line and they can't cross the line because you don't want your four-year-old transgressing into the street. So you hold on to them with a rope. And people, people think that's horrible unless it's a parent. All parents are like, that was a great idea. Why didn't they have that when we were kids? I, I would have bought one of those. The idea that you can't transgress the line. But see, we can transgress. We're humans. We're not robots. We can transgress. In fact, transgressions is something that is so common of us that we don't think it's a big deal. Our transgressions, we all laugh at each other's transgressions because it's so common. If all of us are the same, then we don't think every, nobody's in trouble. This is the teacher in me. How many times the entire class has tried to mutiny? They, they think if every single one of you don't do your homework, then the teacher will throw out the assignment. That's the time I grade it all. That's exactly, if every single one, then it means you're all in cahoots, I'm grading today, okay? Because you're trying to pull something. You're, there's wickedness involved, not just laziness. There's two, there's two problems here, I need to correct at least one of them. And so the idea of transgression is so common that we don't think it's a big deal. And our transgressions against God, we don't think is a big deal. Okay, so transgression is essentially a way to betray someone else's trust. Did someone trust me? Did I betray that trust? In what way did I betray it? That's a transgression. So it's a failure to do my duty, or it's a failure to not. I mean, you've got policemen standing outside a a building that's in a school building that's full of a, a shooter, and you've got hundreds of policemen armed in the parking lot? The entire world rages up and says, wrong. That's wrong. Why would that be wrong? There's a failure to do your duty. That's a transgression. That's guilt. There's guilt attached to that. And so it's easy when you look at someone else and see transgression. 
you see adultery and you go, transgression, wrong, bad. Even, even godless people will say, no, wrong, because you're doing wrong. You're taking money out of the till of your own company and enriching yourself and cheating. That's wrong. Cheating on the test, writing on your... All the cuteness of, of kids cheating, and there's funny, funny stories. I've got funny, funny stories of kids cheating. I've caught kids cheating in the most unbelievably entertaining ways. It's wickedness. Do you see it? It shows something that's inside that will always be inside. That cheater will cheat on everyone. That cheater will cheat on his wife. That cheater will cheat in his business. It's because they're the same person. Transgression has to be forgiven. There is no happiness if your transgressions are not forgiven. So forgiveness is that the person who was offended doesn't feel resentment. As long as the offended party is resenting you, there is no freedom. And if the, the offended party is God himself, there is no happiness with you. If you know that God will judge in righteousness, if that's all you know, that God will judge in righteousness, and that one day you will stop breathing and will be judged in righteousness, you'll never be happy. Do you see it? That's why that people who have no sense of pain feel like they're happy. They feel fine. They're not, they don't have a problem. The only people that don't feel happy are the people under conviction of their sins because they realize God will judge this world in righteousness and I'm one of the people that have judged it and I'm not right with him. That there's a misery there and I can't fake it. I can try to fake it and you can watch a person under conviction who will very quickly go crazy in sin. You can, I've seen it. I know it. Be a youth pastor. Watch teenagers go through conviction of sin. That's when they'll get drunk for the first time. That's when they'll go get pregnant. That's, that's what will happen. They'll go to drugs and they'll go to whatever it is because they're so unhappy. Because the hand of God is pressing on them. And they're so unhappy that they, they just jump. Whereas they wouldn't have jumped if they were fine. A person who doesn't feel pain, you might think, wow, how wonderful not to feel pain. But I, don't, I do not um, envy people like that. People who do not feel pain and know that they're going to be judged is not, uh, I pity that. I don't, I don't think it's wonderful. I, don't, I wouldn't want to be like them. Now, when I feel conviction of my sin, it drives me to Jesus. That's the difference between a Christian. A Christian who is under conviction and says no to God and strong, strong arms God and puts God at the hand, they will be miserable and continue to be miserable, and that can last for years and years, decades. It absolutely can be decades of a person who knows they're not right and will ref- just refuses to do what needs to be done. Their pride is too strong. Okay, so... So they, it, needs to be, it needs to be dealt with, and we, can't, we have to recognize that, that it's deadly serious. Proverbs 26 says, The great God formed all things, but rewards the fool and rewards the transgressors. To reward the fool, you're realizing, oh, it doesn't mean a reward. He's rewarding the transgressors. There will be something that happens as a result. So now I can't be so smug. I can't say, oh, yeah, me too, I overeat, or yeah, too, I'm a lazy bum, or yeah, too, I've, I cheat on my taxes, or I have speed, or whatever you want to say. That me too, me too, because we're all, we're all fellow sinners, 
No, you have to realize, oh, you, you tell me something that's true, a sin you're struggling with, I won't laugh at you. I promise you. And if you say I'm a lazy bum, I, I might smile and say, yeah, me too. And then, and then really, it twinges me, hurts me. That's wrong. There's something wrong about that. There's something wrong about uh, sloth. There's something wrong about gluttony. There's something wrong. And it's indicating something else deeper. And I I feel it too. I feel that pain too. Because we do have that. Now, a sin is different. A sin is an offense against the character of God. Now, the Greek word sin that you see in the New Testament has this idea of an archery term, like that you aimed at something and, and didn't get there. Like you shot at the bullseye and didn't even hit the target. That's a, the idea of a sin, missing the mark. It would be like jumping off the New River Gorge and missing the other side of the gorge and just ending up at the bottom of the gorge. Like I'm, I missed the mark of trying to get all the way across. And because I'm a sinner, Chris and I were talking about that. That's kind of what I was meaning, the idea of like I don't have the ability to do what I want. And if I want to jump all the way across the gorge, that doesn't mean I will because I don't have the ability to do it. I might have the desire to do it, but I can't. And so I miss the mark. So a sin is that way, but a sin also is bad. A sin has this idea of, of not just, oh, I tried and I'm not good enough. I'm such a, um, I'm a, a novice, okay? A long time ago in school, we had A, B, C, D, and F, and you had failures, you don't have a lot of failures now. You have novices, people who aren't quite there yet. I guess it's a different way of thinking. Everybody's a succeeder. Everybody gets a trophy. You don't have failures. You don't have people who didn't study and failed a test. You just had people who haven't quite mastered it yet. That's a different way of thinking. That's a different concept. Okay? A sin is an affront to God's character. It's something, it's something that God will instantly deal with. God doesn't just say, oh, he's trying, he's such a novice. No, it's, a, it's, it's threatening to your soul, and God will deal. He will deal with it. Um, I, I want to tell you that this word sin is only used eight times in the whole Bible, this word, and it's strong. It's absolutely strong. Let me give you the, the uh, occurrences. First one is in Genesis. Abraham has told the king of the country that he's in, that Sarah, who's a beautiful woman, is his sister, which is kind of true because I think she was his half-sister. But he married her, and it was his wife. But he was afraid he would get killed if that king would know. And the king nearly slept with her. And God treated the entire kingdom strongly, and the king realized what was going on. And he went to Abraham, and this is in chapter 20, And Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done? And what have offended you that you've brought upon me and my kingdom this great sin? Thou hast done deeds to me that you ought not have done. That word is so strong. It's as strong as it can be. It's that that offense that is unforgivable. You nearly cost my whole kingdom. How could you do this to me? You should never have done it. Okay? The second time we see it is three times in chapter 32 of Exodus. Moses comes down the mountain, and Aaron, who has already been the high priest, has made a golden calf, and they're all naked, running around this calf, worshiping this idol, when they know who their God is. 
Okay? And Moses says, he came uh, to pass on the morrow. This is verse 30. But Moses said to the people, you have sinned. A great sin. Do you see great is often with this word? Of the eight times it's used in the Bible, great is with it five times. It's, it's so intense. Now I'll go up to the Lord and peradventure he'll make atonement for you. And then verse 31, and Moses returned to the Lord and said to the Lord, Oh, the people have sinned a great sin and made of them gods of gold. Do you see the intensity? The next time we see it is in 2 Kings. Okay? And that Solomon has just died, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, didn't treat people quite right. And so one of the military leaders, Jeroboam, splits and takes ten tribes to the north, and they become their own country. And it's now called Israel. And the two tribes from the south is now called Judah. So Jerusalem is now in Judah, and ten tribes have left the country. Completely, it's a civil war. And... They left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molted images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal, caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire and used divination and enchantments and sold themselves to the evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. This is the king that's now the king of Israel. Did this to the people, to where the people were no longer serving God, no longer doing what they were, and it said that this walked uh, for the children, this is verse 22, of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they departed from him until the Lord removed him. Okay? Um, oh, it was in 21. And made them sin a great sin. Do you see the intensity? Now, the one time it's used as sin offering is used in Psalm 40, which we already went through. Psalm 40 is when Jesus before he was a man, said, I will come to do your will, God. You didn't want offering. You didn't want burnt offering. You didn't want offering for sin. Therefore, I came and you prepared a body for me that I would come. Do you see it? The idea that offering for sin is too puny for the sin. The sin is too serious. The offense is too big. You cannot take out your checkbook when your child robs from the, from the entire National Bank of Atlanta. You, you'll say, well, well, how much, well, I'll fix it. How much do you need? And you pull out your community first, community checkbook, and, and they said, well, he stole $85 billion. And you just look with your checkbook and pull it up because what do you do? A sin offering has to be as strong as the sin. And Jesus said, you didn't desire a sin offering. Because there's nobody on earth that could offer anything that's required for them to make up for what they've done. Their offense was too big. That's why the Son of God became our Savior. That's the only payment big enough to pay for the sin debt. It required Christ on the cross. We could have killed every animal on earth. We could have cut ourselves and bled out. We could have given all of our money. We could have done everything to God and never been right with God. It's too big. And until we know that our sins are deadly serious, that our sins are a front of a holy God, we will never be ready for the pardon of God. God's pardon will mean nothing. We'll not seek it. We won't understand it. We won't know why God is so fed up or why God is so stressed out. Why, is God, why does God think of this as a big deal? So I've got a little bit of a, of a dirty mouth. So that I think bad things. So that I do some bad things. You know, I'm only hurting myself. 
I'm not, it's live and let live. Isn't God a God of tolerance? That's the, that's the United States now. That's where we are. Is there, why should, why should there be right and wrong? Why should righteousness thunder from pulpits? That's the anemia here. That's the anemia here. And that's the anemia here. Okay? Because righteousness has never thundered. That Then people are like, it's just sin. It's just laziness. It's just gluttony. Who cares? I'm only hurting myself. It's an affront from God. And until that sin is covered, you'll never be happy. You'll never be happy. Now, covering in the Old Testament is pictured in several ways. The first one I see is in the flood. And the water rained upon the earth until seven meters above the highest mountain on planet earth, the water covered. Seven meters. Thirty feet. The height of this building above Mount Everest was where the water stopped in the flood. And people would laugh at that. But God covered it all. And that idea of covering it applies to us. Because when we get to the high priest in Leviticus, you shall kill the goat of the sin offering and for his people and bring the blood within the veil and do the blood with it that you did the bullock and then sprinkle it upon the mercy seat before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Once a year, the high priest took blood and poured it on the gold lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where the glory of God was looking directly at the law, knowing what his law and requirement was and knowing what we've done, looking at the law all the time. One time a year, that special offering was poured onto it so that God could no longer see. It blocked, it covered. It covered our offenses. It was an atonement. It covered them. And that idea of covering is is in such a way that God could not see it. Now, the idea of covering, too, was that it wasn't, it was still there. God just couldn't see it. He didn't, he didn't count it against us because we were covered. When Jesus comes, something way better happens than the atonement. We think of the atoning blood of Christ, and it is atoning. But Jesus' blood is expiatory. It takes that sin away. As far as away means. There's no far away that that doesn't mean away. Your sins are no longer there. It's not in front of God's face that needs to be covered. It's not a temporary thing that needs to be done again and again and again. One time and forever, he redeemed us and took away our sins. So when our sins are covered, we can be happy. When our transgressions are forgiven, we can be happy. We can be happy because you're free. There's nothing I need. You take the rest. You give me Jesus, you take it all. You take it all. I wouldn't trade anything. Why? If I'm such a sinner and I'm a sinner, why would I say something so audacious? As you take my wealth, you take my family, you take my life. And I'm not lying to you. Why would that be true? Because I know that that's better. Why would you... Why would a man go and sell everything he has to buy a field? Because he knows what's in the field. He tripped over treasure and he recognized treasure for treasure. He said, 
Oh my goodness, if I owned this field, I'd own the treasure in this field. And he went home and there wasn't anything that he said was precious. He was like that toaster that my great-grandmother gave me. Sell it on eBay. Let's, let's get rid of it. 25 more cents, I want another quarter. I don't care what it is. Sell my Bible. I want it all. Because I'm going to pay for that field. And when I own the field, I own the treasure in the field. When I know that Psalm 32 is all I need, then I'm happy. And you take this world. I win. And I tell you something else. A saintly person who is right with their God, though pitied by this world, is the most to be, to me, not just respected, but to be envied. To envy someone who will forever be rich, will ever be right, will always be in bliss. And trade it for what? Trade it for plastic stuff from China? There's not enough plastic in China for me to trade. Because God told me this was true. And it, the Holy Spirit, in his work in my life, convinced me that God was right here. Otherwise, I would be like everybody else who would say, no, you get what you want, you get what you can, and you do what it takes to get there. I'm not going to trade that. I'm not going to trade. What, what good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Now, iniquity means twisted. In, the, iniquity is Latin. The, the English word, the old English word is wicked. It means, if you've ever seen an oak tree, that limb really doesn't make good boards. The trunk makes good boards. The limb doesn't. Now, the limb is strong, but it's warped and twisted and perverse. That's the idea of that's the idea of iniquity. Unequity, if you know what the word. It's not equal. Here's God's standard. I'm not equal to it. I don't measure up to it. That's what it is. My iniquity has to be, what's it say? Not counted against me. Otherwise I can't be happy. This is Psalm one thirty. If thou, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who would stand? Who could stand? If you counted everything I did against me, who would stand? Who would go to heaven? Not one person would ever go to heaven. And the psalmist is absolutely right. We're going to heaven on Jesus' record, or we're not going. It's really that simple. You've got a Savior, or you're not going. There isn't anything else. You must have your iniquities not counted against you. Otherwise, you will never be happy. You're not going to be happy now temporarily, and you will not be happy forever. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned every way to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our unequalnesses, our twisted perversions, were laid upon the beautiful head of Jesus, and Jesus was, was murdered for us. And that was God's plan. Unbelievable. Now look at Romans. This is Romans 4. Paul writes this. Now to him that work, worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that doesn't work, but believes on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Even as David, he describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who the Lord will not impute sin. Do you see what Paul did? Paul used David's Psalm 32 and said, No, 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 no. Don't work for anything. You work for something they owe you. But if you don't work, but simply trust God who lived for you, then what he did counts for you. If you work for God, if you are an employee of God, you will be fired. Period. You will not, God will not keep you as an employee. You're not good enough. You are not good enough. He will keep you as a child. He will not keep you as an employee. You do not work for God because a, an employer wants someone who does a good job, who's adding value to him. I'm a Fibosheth who cannot walk. I can't gain God any value. God has to treat me in mercy or he can't treat me at all. So, he, so this idea that if I trust not working, but not working and trusting in what Jesus did for me, then his counts for me. And he uses David here to supply this. Okay? Now the last one, and then, so I'm only going to get to these two today. The last one is there is no guile in his spirit, right? In his spirit, he's not tricky. He's not trying to spin. He's not trying to trick. In Sunday school today, we talked about that's who we are. We're spin doctors. We want people to think we're better than we are, okay? Hypocrites will never be happy. Not here, not ever. You cannot, if you're trying to make God thinks something is true of you and not be real with God. Not say the same thing that God says. That's what confession means. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? Confess simply means I'm saying the same thing God's saying. God is saying something about my sin. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is what does God say about my sin? I have to say the same thing. It has to be as serious to me. I have to say, God, I am this person. I am this unholy person. I'm the person who did this. This is not my evil twin that did this. I I can't make it look good. If you are a thief, tell God you're a thief. If you're a liar, tell God you're a liar. And you have to use the word liar. You have to say, no, God, this is who I am. And when you do that, when you confess, there's something that happens. Okay, now I'm going to give you the preview of what's going to happen. Look in three and four. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned to the drought of summer. Do you see? A person who's holding it, not coming, refuses to come to God for, in repentance because of what it's going to cost them. They don't want to give up the sin. They hold it and hold it and hold it. But verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hid. And I said, I'll confess my transgressions and you, God, forgave me. Do you see? It is a matter of being real with God. To be real with God is the first thing required to be happy. If you want to live a life of happiness... You must be right with God, and the only way to be right with God is to be who you really are in front of God 
and hold on to the mercy that he offers you through Jesus. So Lord willing, we'll continue with this the next time.